0: Good morning Purpose Church. It's good to see you guys this morning. My name is Tamiko. I'm one of the pastors here and it is an honor and a privilege. Thank you Pastor Jay to get to share the message with you today. If you're watching with us online, welcome or at one of our camp, uh, satellite campuses in Arco, Idaho or Kalispell, Montana or the Hangar, Montana. Uh, we just want to send a special welcome to you too. And we're really glad that you are watching with us online. Um, so today Today in your um, program, you should have received uh, your study outline, and on that is a post-it note. Um, Please don't uh, get rid of that. You're going to need that. We're going to use it at the end of the message, so just hold on to that. So we have been studying the second half of the book of John in our series titled Upside Down, How Jesus Reframes Everything, and we're studying how Jesus literally turned the world upside down. So uh, several weeks ago, Pastor Glenn asked me if I would be able to share today um, from the John chapter fourteen. And so as I began to look at this chapter, I kind of thought, "Oh wow, this is this is a great chapter. Majority of it is the words of Jesus. He's speaking to his disciples. A lot of very encouraging words. Um, if you have been a follower of Jesus for a long period of time, you may be familiar with some of the the scripture that we're going to read today. You may have even memorized it um, for, uh, at some point in." your life, even if you're not a follower of Jesus or new to the faith, maybe you're familiar with some of these words. And so as I was reading, I was just Just uh, noticing that, but then I took a step back, and as we should always do when we're studying scripture, and kind of look at what happens before and what happens after, and in particular, what happens before in chapter 13, I think is really important for us to take note of before we dive into chapter 14. So two weeks ago, Pastor Glenn brought the message from chapter 13, and in chapter 13, we see that Jesus has just shared the Passover meal with his disciples disciples in the upper room. And so as he was sharing the Passover meal, he took these elements that were um, uh, traditional elements to the Passover, the unleavened bread and the wine. And he used those as an example, as a metaphor for what he was about to do, which was to lay down his life, to go to the cross for them and for us. And he talked about his body being broken and his blood being shed. Um, And so this might have been a little bit confusing to his disciples, And then he did something that also I think would have been very different and maybe confusing to them. And that was he washed their feet. Um, And as Pastor Glenn taught us, this is something so unusual uh, for the rabbi, the teacher, to do something, a lowly task that would have been reserved for the servant, to go around and wash their feet. And so he demonstrated that he would be laying down his life for them. And he demonstrated servant leadership. So the disciples are actually in this position of being kind of confused about what's happening. And then Jesus keeps talking about how he's going somewhere. How he's leaving them. And these men have been following him around um, uh, Israel around Palestine for three years they've grown so close to him Um, they he was their rabbi their teacher and here he is he's saying he's gonna leave and so they're very uneasy Uh, you might even say they're despondent because their teacher their leader is saying that he's leaving and they're confused where is he going if you're going somewhere we want to follow you we're your followers why can't we go with you So this is the situation that we're in when we come to chapter 13. Um, Jesus is trying to explain to them what is going to unfold and then bring comfort to them. He's trying to reassure them of what is about to take place. Even though this is going to be so heavy and difficult for them, he's trying to bring reassurance of what is going to happen. Maybe you can imagine, maybe you can put yourself in the story. Imagine what it would be like if somebody dear to you is getting ready to leave, maybe move or even um, getting to the end of their life. And so as I was preparing for this message, I was reminded of, or the Lord brought, I think, to my memory, um, when my father passed away. And I had just graduated from high school, just turned 18. And my dad was diagnosed with cancer, with terminal cancer. And he passed away within about three months of that diagnosis. And I remember kind of talking with him a little bit about what it meant to, to die, and what was going to happen. Um, and it was v- a very difficult time, as you can imagine, for our family and for him, for, bo- for both sides, so to speak. For, for him processing um, that he was going to pass away at a younger age and, then, and leave behind everybody that he loved and worrying about his children and his family and what was going to happen to them. And then also for us. Thinking he's leaving the person that is our father, a provider that we've grown dependent upon, is no longer going to be a regular figure in our life. Um, my dad was a believer and so I knew that he was going to go to heaven and I knew that he was going to a better place. But that doesn't take away that feeling of of sadness, of of grief that we were going through. Um, He knew that my mom would take care of me, but he mentioned, I'm going to talk to your older brother. I'm going to talk to James, your brother James, and I know that he'll take care of you. And my older brother has definitely done that over the years, looked after me, been concerned about me, giving me advice on my choices when I was a starving student, f- taking me out to dinner, um, inviting me into his home and his family. And so my dad was was concerned and worried enough and he la- left somebody for me in charge to, to be an assistant to me. And so we're gonna see in chapter 14 how a similar situation unfolds with Jesus and his disciples as he is getting ready to leave them, how he's trying to comfort and prepare them for that. He takes a moment to exhort his followers, and he shares where he's going, how to get there, and then what is going to happen next. So first of all, where is he going? So the disciples are losing their teacher, and they're very puzzled by where he's going. They don't understand why they cannot go with him. So let's start in John 14 at at the top of the chapter, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Or maybe in today's language, Jesus might say something like, don't get stressed out. I'm going somewhere. It's an amazing place. My father lives there. You can't come right now, but you can come soon, and I'm going to get it ready for you. Now, this word in the Greek, manai, is translated rooms, or another translation might be abiding places. Now, I think sometimes we want to think of heaven as a place where Jesus is preparing mansions for us individually, like palatial residences. I always like to joke that my mansion is going to be on the beach in Hawaii because that just sounds like heaven to me, Um, but we like to think of them as kind of our own individual place, Um, and you know, really this is about abiding with Jesus, and he's saying there's room for all. As opposed to our earthly houses that can become overcrowded. Um, My husband and I, we have two little boys. So my husband Chris and I, um, we have Christian and Cruz. We also have two dogs. And we live in a kind of smaller house. And so sometimes it just feels really crowded. Um, We have two little boys, so they make a lot of noise. Um, We have two dogs that also make a lot of noise. And there's just, you know, kids' toys and stuff everywhere. And sometimes it just feels so hectic and chaotic in our house. And we often find ourselves saying to each other, there's no room in this little house. There's nowhere to go in this little house, and so I've even resorted to trying to lock myself in the bathroom to escape, you know, crying kids, whiny kids, barking dogs, and inevitably, those of you that maybe have one bedroom, or if you grew up with one bedroom, can relate to this, but inevitably, when you are trying to use the restroom, or lock yourself in the restroom, what happens? Somebody else needs to use it, right? So that's inevitably what happens to, inevitably what happens to me. And so re- realistically, we, we're a little overcrowded in our house. But Jesus is saying there is room for everyone in, in heaven. Anybody who chooses to be a follower of me, who follows me, who believes in me, who trusts in me, who understands that I am the Messiah, there's room for everyone. There is room for all. Now, Jesus says, you know the way to the place I'm going, but his friends are still confused. In fact, Thomas speaks up and he verbalizes his confusion. In verse 5, he says, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Now, have you ever been listening to somebody and you found yourself a little bit confused by what they were saying? Hopefully not today in this talk. Hopefully that will be really Clear, But maybe, it was, you were, maybe you were in a classroom, maybe you were at work, and your supervisor or somebody's giving a talk or giving a training, and you maybe just kind of got a little bit confused. When I was in grad school, I went to Fuller uh, Seminary, which is in Pasadena, and I had some amazing professors. And I did pretty good it, when I was in school. I was a pretty good student. But these are professors that have been studying God's word. They've been studying church history. They've been studying missions their whole lives. They've been in academia their whole lives. They've been writing about it, studying it. So they're brilliant. So there were many times where I remember sitting in the classroom feeling confused. Like, I kind of, did I miss something? And you know, sometimes if you just miss one little thing, then 10 minutes later in the lecture, you're really confused. So this happened to me at one particular time. I think I was in a New Testament survey course with Professor Green, and he was going on about a particular verb or the tenses of something in Greek. And I remember sitting there and looking around the room and kind of thinking, am I the only one that's confused? But everybody else is like nodding their heads in agreement and taking notes voraciously, either writing or on their computer. So I'm thinking, well, I'm not, it must just be me. I must have just missed something. But then there's one brave soul, right, who raises their hand and says, Professor Green, can you clarify that statement that you made about blah, blah, blah? And then you hear this collective sigh of relief, right? Because a lot of people were feeling the same way. So I feel like this is Thomas right here. Like he's the guy who stands up and says, okay, Jesus, we're confused. Help us out here. Can you bring some clarity to what you're saying? And so Jesus attempts to do that with for them. So we, back, in, back in chapter 14, let's pick up in verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Jesus starts to answer this question how do we get there? With this first statement, this first phrase, I am the way. This concept of the way or ways of God is found in several other places in Scripture, and it denotes keeping along a path or a walkway. In Deuteronomy 5, verses 32 and 33, we read, So be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in obedience to all that the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. And then in Isaiah thirty twenty one, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And then in Isaiah 35, 8, and a highway will be there, it will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on the way. And then in Psalm twenty seven eleven, teach me your way, Lord, lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Just recently, my husband and I were at dinner with some of our neighbors. We regularly gather with our neighbors every week, and we have dinner with them. And uh, we were uh, sharing conversations about summer vacations, and one of the family was, families was sharing about how they had gone to the Grand Canyon recently. And this started this conversation about what it's like to visit the Grand Canyon and to go there. And I don't know, how how many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? Okay, it's an amazing, expansive place. Um, But one of our friends, Sarah, was talking about how when she had gone as a teenager, they had done something called the mule experience. Has anybody ever done the mule experience? I'm curious if anybody. Oh, I do see a few hands. Okay. So she was talking about how you can ride a mule from the top all the way down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And so I thought, oh, that sounds so cool. I would love to do that. Maybe when my boys are older, I would love to ride a mule. That would be such a cool way to go to the Grand Canyon and see it. But then she started telling me a little bit more about what this experience is like. And you can go over a couple of days, a one-day trip or a two-day trip. Sometimes you camp out along the river at the bottom. And it's actually quite treacherous. She shared details, parts of the trail that she said are extremely steep with sharp switchbacks. So this is not like riding a horse along the prairie in an open field, okay? You are riding to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. So I started to do some research online about this mule experience. And I read that the scariest part is called the devil's corkscrew. And so one vacationer wrote on his blog, you'll be traveling on a trail so narrow at one point that your shoulder will nearly touch the wall while at a sharp precipice straight down to the Colorado River yawns open on the other side. So basically, if the mule takes one little step off the trail, you're history, right? But all of the mule riding experiences say that they've never lost anybody, ever. (laughs) So I realized, I started to not get as excited about doing this, by the way, so um, my interest level kind of waned. But these mules uh, uh, mules and the guides are so well trained and experienced. They have done this hundreds of times. So really, it made me realize that your only chance of making it to the bottom is to trust your mule and your guide. And really the way to the bottom of the Grand Canyon isn't the trail, it's them. It's the guide and the mule. And so going through them is the only way to make it to your destination. So another way to understand the way might be something like this. Maybe you've ever been lost. Okay, I know some of us don't like to admit when we're lost. Okay, I'm one of those people, I don't mind admitting it because I'm lost all the time. I have a terrible sense of direction. Uh, but one time I was traveling, I loved to travel, and I was younger in my single days, and I was in Japan with a friend of mine, my friend Carrie, and we wanted to go see one of, some famous site. And so we had a map and we got on the train and we got off on the right uh, train stop and we got out and we were trying to follow this map and the directions we knew how to get there, but somehow we got lost finding this particular historical site. And so we went into this shop and asked this shopkeeper, or we attempted to ask the shopkeeper in Japanese how to get there. Now, my Japanese is very, very limited. Hers was even more limited. So you can kind of see what's going to happen next. So So we're trying to ask him directions, and he's understanding where we want to go, so he's answering us in Japanese, but unfortunately, we don't understand him. So we're kind of looking at him, and our head is tilting to the side, and then we show him that we have a map, and so we think, okay, maybe he can show us on the map. And he does, but then we're still confused, which that we, we should have figured that out. We were already lost. Finally, he gets so frustrated, and he says, baka gaijin, which means silly foreigners in Japanese. And, and he storms out of his shop. And we thought, oh my goodness, we've offended him. And that's really rare. Like the Japanese people are so hospitable and they always try to help you. But we realized he's going like this. And he's motioning for us to follow him. And he led us several blocks through some curved streets to where we were trying to go. And we realized he was the way to our destination. Um, The map didn't help us, the verbal directions, but he led the way. Jesus is the way to the Father. It is only through him that we can have relationship with the Father and spend eternity with him. Um, Next, Jesus says, I am the truth. You know, many people can teach truth. And probably during Jesus' time, there were many rabbis that were teaching truth. But no one embodied truth like Jesus. Nobody was truth in human form. You know, some people want to teach about morality, but if they make impure choices, then their teaching is almost null and void, right? Or if they speak of forgiveness, but hold bitterness in their heart. Or if speak, try to teach on humility but are prideful. You know, leaders often fall from grace. And sometimes, even if they're um, Hollywood actors or actresses or even politicians, it's almost like we expect that to happen or we're not surprised. Because they are not, they don't embody truth. They are human beings. But Jesus didn't just make statements of truth. He was truth. Moral perfection was realized in him. And then finally, he says, I am the life. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Nobody comes to God except through Jesus. And knowing him makes life worth living. In him, we see what God is like. And that leads us into relationship with God the Father. You know, during this time, God was perceived as the invisible. Nobody had seen God or dared to think they had seen God. Even Moses, who saw God, only got to see his back. Exodus 33 says, then I will, this is God speaking to Moses, Yahweh speaking to Moses, then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So nobody had seen God, yet God was revealed through Jesus. And in Jesus, through Jesus, we can have eternal life. So then what is going to happen next So let's pick up back in John 14, verse 12. Very truly, this is Jesus again, speaking to his disciples. I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, at first read this might be a little bit confusing. Jesus is telling them they're gonna do greater things than he did. How is that possible? How is it possible that human beings can do something greater than Jesus, than God, than, than the Son of God? What did Jesus mean by that? But this word in Greek means Greater than. It's important to understand that. Greater than or more. It doesn't mean better things. It doesn't mean things that I haven't done. It just means more. Okay? And let's understand. Let's try to take a minute to understand what he meant by that. So, well, first of all, we know that the early church had the same power of Jesus and, that Jesus had. And witnessed the miraculous. Paul lists healing as one of the spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12, we read, to another gifts of healing by that one spirit and to another miraculous powers. And then in James chapter 5, verse 14, James writes, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. So the early church had the same power as Jesus. To, to bring healing and to see the miraculous. And even in today, we have seen such advances in medicine with s- new surgical methods and, and vaccines and prevention, things that might have even seemed godlike um, in the ancient world, things that never could have seemed possible. And this is all because Jesus conquered sin and death. But what does it mean to do greater than things? So during Jesus' ministry, um, he healed people of physical sickness. He cast out demons. He spoke against hypocrisy. He brought the marginalized into the center. But his ministry was limited to just a brief period of time, just a few years. And a certain region. He preached within Palestine, but not beyond it. But the followers of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, And the Apostle Paul took the gospel throughout the Roman Empire to Greece, through the islands in the Mediterranean. And then today, the gospel has been spread almost through the entire world. So in Jesus' time on earth, his ministry was limited to Palestine and the people in that area. But in matters of influence... Since he has ascended to the Father and given us the Holy Spirit, the church, the name of Jesus and the good news and the gospel has been spread throughout the entire world. So it's not that the church is doing better things or things that Jesus hasn't, has not done, but more has been accomplished because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has worked mightily through the church and greater works have been accomplished. You know, I was thinking recently about how the enemy is affecting the world today and kind of the world that we face. You know, um, the enemy is always using new tactics to hurt and destroy people, new forms of media, um, to trying to twist our minds so we have no moral code, influencing us to believe right and wrong is just a matter of personal opinion. Um, devising new illegal drugs or other means to bring people in addiction. These are just a few of the evils that the church faces today. But how will the church be able to accomplish greater things than Jesus did? So Jesus explains um, in, back in John chapter 14. So in verse 15, he says, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. And then down to verse 25, Jesus says, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will will remind you of everything I have said. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So who is this advocate, this comforter? It's the Holy Spirit. You know, the, this word parakletos in Greek we tra- is often translated as comforter. You know, when someone's hurting doesn't it bring comfort to have people around them? Maybe you've been in a position of hurting and it brought comfort to have people around you or you have been able to bring comfort to somebody. Jesus is saying, he, don't, don't worry, I know I'm leaving you and your, your heart is breaking, but I am gonna send somebody to comfort you and support you. The Holy Spirit he was sending would to teach them and remind them of his teachings and empower them to do greater things. He wasn't just a helper, but he was an advocate. You know, we use that term advocate sometimes in the judicial system, the way an attorney represents their client, or a family advocate speaks up for children or families in crisis. And so in this way, the Holy Spirit is our advocate to God the Father. But the Holy Spirit empowered the early church and empowers us today to do even greater things. Um, when I was growing up, I was really close to my mom's family. My mom was the oldest of six siblings, and her youngest brother was my uncle Brian. Um, my, my grandmother had adopted him. She had fostered him for when he was an infant, when a, a newborn, I should say, um, and then she later adopted him. Um, my, we don't know very much about his biological family. We know that his mom was a teenager when she had him and decided to give him up for adoption. Um, and so, excuse me, so we don't know much about my, my uncle's um, history biologically. Um, but when he was a very young teen, he just started to get into partying and, and really fell deep into a hole of addiction to drugs and alcohol. Um, gotten, got addicted to methamphetamine and alcohol. And so for, uh, for my whole life, I just feel like he was in and out of our lives. You know, um, some of you may have experienced this of someone in your life that has an addiction. And so when they're out in that addiction they're usually kind of away from the family and so um, he would just be in and out of our lives he had spent he spent time in prison and so for many years he lived honestly uh, down at the river bottoms in the in the town where i grew up and then at other times we never knew where he was Um, and so recently i got a text message from my mom with this photo and it's this is my auntie beth with with my my mom's younger sister and my uncle, Brian. And she said, the text simply said, Beth saw Brian today, he is doing great. So for me, for my uncle to say he's doing great, that may sound like a simple phrase to you, but it's actually a miracle that he's doing great. And so I, I asked my mom, can I have his number? Because I wanted to call him and reach out to him and just hear about how he came back to Jesus. So I called him this week. And, I, you know, maybe you've made this kind of phone call where you're kind of nervous. You don't know how the phone call is going to go. And it took a minute for him to register even who I was. But then once he did, it was like my uncle again. The sober one, the one that I remember when I was a little kid being silly with me, that voice that wasn't affected by drugs and alcohol. He said that he, he was living down at the River Bottoms and he would go to this uh, place called the Mission and they would feed him and there was a pastor there that would come and give a message and this pastor reached out to him And he said the pastor would come pick him up or send somebody to pick him up and take him to church. And the pastor even went so far as to um, hiring him to do labor around the house, around his work with him and do labor and paid him for it. And he said, but he said, you know, something happened. I did something really bad and my friend almost died. And I knew that I needed to come back to Jesus. And so he said the prodigal son has come home after years of running, has come home. So you know what, I haven't seen my uncle in years. I still haven't seen him in person. Um, I've just seen this photo. So when I look at this photo, the one you see behind me, I do see someone that's older. It looks like maybe he's lost a couple teeth, (laughs) maybe from the life that he has lived. and um, But I see health, I see freedom from drug addiction, I see wholeness, I see sobriety, I see new life in Jesus, and I see something greater than I ever thought imaginable. Because of the power of the Holy Spirit working through his church, my uncle has come back to Jesus. So because of Jesus' victory over sin and death on the cross and the gift of his Holy Spirit, God is doing greater things through his church. And he wants to continue to do greater things in us and through us. So as we finish up our time together, let's watch this video. So God wants to use us. He wants to use his church to change their story. Um, so I want to invite you now just to respond to what you've heard today before we go back into worship. And I want you to grab that post-it note. And I want to invite you to do, write down one of two things. So first, maybe you have a situation in your life where you desire to see God do something great. You need God to do something great. And so maybe you will write, free, my, free someone, whoever that is, your uncle, your son, your daughter, from addiction. Restore my marriage. Bring my daughter back home. Heal my body. Heal my finances. So write down whatever, whatever the miraculous is that you need to see. Write that down on the post-it note. Or maybe you realize you're in a position where God is wanting to do something great for you, and you're ready to let him do that. I want you to write that down. God, do something great through me. Or maybe just simply write, use me. Use me to change their story. I want you to take that post-it, save it, put it in your Bible or your wallet or your purse, wherever you're going to see it frequently this week, to remind you that through the power of the Holy Spirit, God is doing greater things than these through his church, through you. So let's stand as we move back into worship. Thank you.